Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Arul Menezes. Arul is a distinguished engineer at Microsoft. Arul, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Thank you, Sam. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really looking forward to our chat, which will focus on some of the work you're doing in the machine translation space. To get us started, I'd love to have you introduce yourself and share a little bit about your background. How'd you come to work in NLP and, and translation? And tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, so I've actually been at Microsoft 30 years at this point. I uh, Yeah, I know. God, it's a long time. I was actually in a PhD program. I came here for the summer, loved it so much. I never went back. So I worked at Microsoft in the various engineering teams for a while. And then eventually I drifted back into research and I joined the natural language processing team and Microsoft Research. And I started the machine translation project. And I've been doing that ever since. I've been doing machine translation for like 20 years now. And it's been it's been a great ride because uh, it's just a fascinating field. So many interesting challenges. And we've made so much progress from when we started, you know, and we've gone through so many evolutions of technology. It's been, it's been a great ride, yeah. Yeah, there are some pretty famous examples of, you know, how the introduction of, Deep learning has changed machine translation. I, I'm assuming that your experience there is no different. Can you share yeah. a little bit about how the the evolution that you've seen over the years? Sure, sure. I mean, historically, you know, machine translation is something people tried to do. You know, in the 50s, uh, it was one of the first things they wanted to do with computers. You know, along with simulating sort of nuclear sort of bombs. But for the longest time, it was very, very hard to make progress. So all the way through, I would say, the late 90s, early 2000s, we were still in sort of rule-based and knowledge sort of engineered approaches. But then the first real breakthrough that came in the late 90s, well, actually starting a little earlier uh, in terms of some papers published at IBM, but really taking off in the late 90s and early 2000s was statistical machine translation where for the first time, you know, we were able to take advantage of like large amounts of uh, previously translated data, right? So you take documents and web pages and things that that have previously been translated by people and you get these parallel texts, which is, let's say, English and French, and you align documents and sentences and then eventually words and phrases so you can learn these translations. And so... With statistical machine translation, we were learning from data for the very first time instead of having people hand code it. And it worked actually astonishingly well compared to what we were doing before. But eventually we ran into the limits of the technology because while we had the data, we didn't have the techniques to do a good job of learning what that data was telling us because you know the machine learning techniques that we had back then just weren't good enough at, they were good at memorizing Right? If you said something exactly the way they had seen in the data, they would do a good job of translating it. But they were terrible at generalizing from what they saw in the data. And that's where neural models come in. Like neural models are amazing at generalizing. You know, people always talk about how some of the latest models, you know, you can probe them to 
figure out what was in their training data and get them to reproduce what was in their training data. But what we forget is it takes work to actually make them do that because most of the time they're generalizing, they're paraphrasing, they're not just replicating their training data. And that's something we were not able to do before. So if you look at the evolution over the last 20 years of machine translation, we had a statistical machine translation, which did really well for a while, but then eventually plateaued. Then, you know, we had sort of the advent of neural networks. And the first thing that people tried to do was, you know, we did feed forward neural networks. We tried to shoehorn them into the framework we already had and combine feed forward networks and statistical techniques. And that worked okay. You got a few incremental improvements, but it wasn't until we had the sort of pure neural LSTM models that we, for the first time, were really capturing the power of neural models, right? So what an LSTM model would do would be, you know, you have this encoder that you feed the source language sentence in, and it basically embeds the meaning of that entire sentence in the LSTM state. And then you feed that to a decoder that is now generating a fluent sentence sort of based on this very abstracted, embedded understanding of what the source language said. And so that's very different from the way we were doing it, just sort of copying words and phrases that we'd memorized. So that was the first revolution, and and it gave us amazing results, actually, compared to what we were doing before. And then, of course, along after that came transformers, which sort of take that whole encoder-decoder architecture, but take it to the next level instead of having the meaning of the entire source sentence be encoded into a single LSTM state, which may work well for short sentences, but gets you know worse as you get to longer sentences. In a transformer, you know we have the self-attention that's basically looking at every word in the source and every word in the target. And so you have like full context available to the model at any point in time. So that's where we stand today is, you know, transformers are the state of the art. But of course, there's lots of really cool, interesting variations and things we're doing, which I think we're going to talk about at some point. And when you talk about transformers being the state of the art, is that what is powering the current kind of production Azure machine translation service? Or is that the state of the art in research? And, you know, there's some combination of the various techniques you mentioned that is powering the live service. So the live service is very much powered by transformers. We have, you know, all 180 language pairs or something that we support powered by transformers running in production. Now, one thing we do do is that we take advantage of what's called knowledge distillation, right? To take the knowledge that's embedded in these very large transformers that we train offline and then condense that or distill that into smaller, still transformers, but smaller, shallower, and narrower models that we use in production, right? So we typically go through multiple stages of these teacher models before we get to the student. So our pipeline is actually fairly complex. We take the parallel data, which I mentioned earlier, which is sort of the lifeblood of machine translation. This is the previously translated human text. And we train like a first teacher based on that data. Then we typically do what's called back translation, which is a technique in machine translation to take advantage of monolingual data, so data that's not parallel, so it's not translated source and target, it's just in one language, typically the target language. And what we do there is we want to take advantage of this monolingual data to teach the model more about the syntax and the you know semantics of the target language so it gets more fluent. 
And the way we incorporate that data into machine translation model is through something called back translation, where we take the, the target language data, we translate it back to the source using one of our models, and then we use it to train the model in the other direction. So this is a little complicated. So basically, if you're training an English to French model, mm -hmm. in addition to the parallel English-French data, you also take some French monolingual data, you translate it back to English using your other direction translation system, the French to English system, mm -hmm. and then you put that synthetic data back into training your English-French system. Okay. So. So that's essentially a, a data augmentation technique. It is, yeah. It's a data augmentation technique, and it works like incredibly well. Actually, adds several points to our metric. The metric we use in machine translation is called the blue score. I mean, there are other metrics, and I, I mean, I could talk about that at some point if we want to get into it. But you know, we get several points of blue score out of the back translation, and then so that's our final sort of teacher model, which is typically huge. And then what we do is we use that model to teach the student model. And the way we do that is essentially we run like a huge amount of text through this teacher model. And then we take the data generated by the teacher and we train the student on it. And the reason that works is because unlike sort of natural data that we train the teacher on, which can be confusing, contradictory, diverse. The, the data generated by the teacher is very uniform and it's very standardized. And so you, you can use a much simpler student model to learn all of that knowledge from the teacher because it's a simpler learning problem. And having done that, that model runs like super fast and we can host in production and translate like trillions of words, you know, so yeah. And so the, the student-teacher part of the process is kind of interesting to explore a little bit further. Are you essentially trying to do something, uh, you're, the task that you're trying to, or goal that you're trying to achieve with that is model compression. Right. It's a very different approach to it than like pruning or, right. or you know, some of the other ways you might approach compression. Yeah, right. So we do like we do a lot of different things for model compression, right? So one of the things we do is we we do quantization, for example. We run all our models in eight bits. We've experimented with less than eight bits. It's not quite as effective, but you know uh, we we do that. Uh, we do some other like pruning techniques as well. But the biggest one is the knowledge distillation. And what you're trying to do there is get a smaller model to basically mimic the behavior of the big teacher model, just running a lot cheaper. And by combining all the techniques, we published a paper last year on this at a workshop. And from our big teacher, with all of the knowledge distillation, the compression, the quantization, and so on, we're running something like 250 times faster on wow. the student than the teacher with, I mean, there is a small loss in quality, right? But we lose maybe half a blue point, not too much. And in some cases, not even any. We can like actually maintain the quality as is. So yeah, my next question for you, it the way you describe the process and in particular the idea that the teacher is outputting more consistent examples than what mm -hmm. is found in the training data. Right. My next question was, or the intuition that I had was that that would cause the student to be far less effective at generalizing and would make it perform worse. But it sounds like that's not the case in practice. So the key to that is to make sure that the 
data that you feed through the teacher to teach the student is diverse enough to cover all the situations that you may encounter, right? So the students are a little weird. I mean, and I think you're sort of hinting at that. We do, for example, overfit the student to the training data, which is something that you typically wouldn't do in your teacher model because you, in fact, are trying to make the teacher match the student as much as possible. Mm. So some of the things that you do to make the, to the teachers better at generalization, you don't do in the student. And in fact, if you look at the student distributions, they're much sharper than the teacher distributions because they have overfit to the data that they've seen. But, you know, there's a little evidence that you can get into some corner cases that are brittle, like, you know, there's this problem of neural hallucination that all of the neural models are subject to where, you know, occasionally they'll just output something that is completely off the wall unrelated to anything that they've seen. And there's some evidence that there's a little bit of amplification of that going on. Like if it's, you know, the teachers are also subject to hallucination, but maybe at a very, very low frequency, and that maybe that's being amplified a little bit in the student. So we're, you know, we're working on managing that. But yeah, so there's, there's you know, it's a trade-off. Like the students have lower capacity, but that's what enables us to run them. And we, you know, we run them on CPU. We don't, be, we don't use GPUs in production. Uh, inference we use, of course, all the models are trained and and all the knowledge decisions are done on GPUs. But at, but uh, in production, we're just using CPUs. And is is that primarily based on the cost benefit analysis, or is it based on the latency envelope that you have to work with and not needing, not wanting to kind of batch uh, right. inference requests? Yeah, that that's exactly right. I mean, you know, latency is a big concern. Our API is a real, real time API. And so, you know, latency is the biggest driving factor. And uh, honestly, if you do inference on GPUs, you know, you get some latency benefit, but the big benefit is on large batches. And so unless you have a matched batch translation API, you can't really take advantage of the full capacity of your of your GPU. So, you know, in a real-time API. Mm-hmm. And are both the teacher and the student models transformers? Yeah, they are. They are. Yeah, the the students are transformer large or a little bit larger, and then this. Uh, sorry, that's the teachers, and then the students. They're very highly optimized transformer. I mean, they, we start with transformer base, but then we do a lot of really strange stuff. I would refer you to the paper, actually. Okay. When you were describing the data augmentation technique that you use, right. It kind of called to mind ideas about incorporating a GAN type of an approach where you're doing the passback translation and then, you know, maybe there's some GAN that is trying to figure out if the result going backwards is like a human translation. Is there a role for that kind of technique? Is that something that comes up in the research? Yeah, so we've we've looked at GANs. There were some exciting results, but, uh, but in the end, I mean, I think we have some okay-ish research results. We haven't seen much benefit, but more broadly in terms of data augmentation, we're using it all over the place, right? So it's we have the back translation, but there are a lot of phenomenon that we want to address in machine translation that is maybe not well represented in the data. And so we use data augmentation pretty heavily to cover those cases, right? To give you a simple example, when you translate a sentence and you get a particular translation and then you go in and let's say you remove the period at the end of the sentence, sometimes it changes the translation entirely. They may both be perfectly good translations, right? But they're different. 
So one way to look at it is, well, they're good, both good translations, but people don't like that. So if you look at our customers, and we're very sensitive to what our users, the feedback we get from our users. So one of the feedback we got was that, you know, we want a little more stability in our translation. So, you know, just because I lost the period at the end of the sentence, I shouldn't get a drastically different translation. And so, you know, it's very easy to augment the data and say, well, you know, stochastically, I'm going to like delete the period on my sentences. And so then the model learns to basically be robust to whether there's a period or not. Now, of course, you know, that's different with a question mark. You definitely want to leave the question mark in because that changes the meaning of the whole mm-hmm. sentence. But, you know, things like that, punctuation, the period, commas, things like that. Maybe, you know, capitalization, for example, one of the, the other examples would be like an all cap sentence. You know, you take the whole sentence and you change it to all caps when you get a totally different translation, right? So we, again, generate some synthetic all caps data so that the model learns to do a good job of translating that as well. And then there's, you know, there's all these, like, I, I would call them, you know, long tail phenomenon that, uh, and, you know, uh, we feel that data augmentation is a good way to address some of these. Yeah. Your examples are really interesting to me because I'm refer- I'm comparing them to like your textbook NLP types of examples where the first thing you're doing is making everything lowercase and getting rid of all of your punctuation. Yeah. Sounds like that does not work for translation. No, because there's a lot of information in casing and punctuation, right? Like, I mean, if you want to handle names, for example, you need to pay attention to the case of the input. Like everything in the input has information. And so actually, even the punctuation, right? Like sometimes if you take the period off at the end of the sentence, it should change things because it may be a noun phrase rather than an actual sentence, right? So it's not so much about pre-processing the data and trying to be clever. It's about exposing the model to different variations so that the model can figure things out for itself. Mm -hmm. One of the questions this prompts is like the unit of, you know, work or the unit of um, thing that you're trying to translate, you know, translating a word, being different from translating a sentence, being different from translating an entire document. Right. It sounds like most of what we've been talking about is kind of phrase by phrase now relative to the word by word that you know we were doing 20 years ago. Are you also looking at the entire document? Are you able to get information from a broader context to impact the translations? Yeah, so that's that's a very good question, Sam. Yeah, so the context matters a lot, right? So one of the reasons why neural models are so great at translating now is because they they're looking at the whole sentence context and they're translating the entire context uh, the sentence and every uh, they they're basically sort of figuring out the meaning of every word and phrase in the context of the whole sentence which is something we couldn't do with statistical machine translation before so now the next step is to expand that context to Uh, beyond the sentence, right? So there are a lot of phenomenon that it's impossible to translate well without context beyond the sentence, right? In many languages, unless you have a document-level context, a paragraph-level context, you can't generate the right pronouns because you don't actually know, the sentence doesn't have enough clues to let you know what is the gender of the subject or the object or the person you're talking about in that sentence. Beyond just the pronouns, it's also like, um, uh, you know, the senses of words and, uh, you know, disambiguating those. So we're, we're actually moving towards translating at the whole document level context, or at least, you know, very large multi-sentence fragments. And then there we'll be able to use, you know, the, 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 the context of the entire document to translate each individual sentence. And we actually have 
some really great research results based on translating at document level. Yeah, so we're pretty excited about that. That model is not in production yet, Mm -hmm. but it's something that we're working on. We did ship a document level API. I think it's in public preview right now, which uh, addresses sort of the other half of the problem, which is, you know, people have documents, they've got formatting, you know, it's in PDF, it's in Word, it's in PowerPoint, whatever, and uh, HTML. And it's a hassle getting all the text out of that, getting it translated, and then we're still trying to reassemble the document and reconstruct the formatting of that document on the translated thing. So we've made that easy. We just ship this API. You just give us your PDF. We'll tear it apart. We'll do the translation. We'll put it back together and we'll preserve the format. And, uh, you know, especially for PDF, that is actually really hard. Doing the format preservation is tricky, but we're pretty excited about that API. And so then that's the place where our document level neural model would fit right in, right? Because now we have the users giving us the whole document We can not only handle all this stuff about the formatting and all that. We can go one better. We can actually use the whole document context to give you better quality translations. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an overview of some of the techniques that go into looking at the entire document when building the the model? Yeah, so there's, I mean, right now, as I said, we haven't actually shipped this, so we're looking at a, a bunch of variations. You know, there's several things that people have looked at, like what, you know, there are hierarchical models where you, do the, you run transformers at the sentence level, and then you run a second level to sort of like collect the sentence level information into like a document level context vector. And then you feed that back into translating each sentence. We're finding that actually, if you just make it like super simple and treat the whole thing as, as if it were a giant sentence, in effect, you get really good results. You do have to deal with the performance issues, right? Because transformers are N squared in the size of the input and the output. So instead of, you know, handling you know, a 25 word sentence, if we're now translating a thousand word, you know, document or paragraph, then, you know, you've got like an N squared problem in terms of the performance, right? It's going to be that much more expensive, but we have, we have things that we're looking at to make that faster as well. So we're pretty optimistic we can do that. And, uh, and I think we can do that with just letting the transformer figure it out for itself rather than trying to be very clever about all this hierarchical stuff. Nice. Nice. Let's talk a little bit about the role of different languages. You know, we, we've already talked about how you can use back translation to help augment the performance of your translation of a language in, in one direction or the translation between a couple of language pairs. Great. Are there ways to take advantage of the other 130 or sure. language that you, that you support when you're building the N plus one model for a given language? Absolutely, absolutely. That's been one of the most exciting things I would say that came out of sort of transformers and and neural models in general is the ability to do this sort of transfer learning between languages, right? And the reason we can do that is because transformers uh, or neural models in general are representing the meanings of words and sentences and phrases as embeddings in you know this space and by training on multiple languages together, you can actually get the representations of these languages to merge and have the similar concepts be represented through related points in space, in that space, right? So as a practical matter, we've basically found that if we group languages by family, right, and take, so for example, we took all our Indian languages 
and we put them together and we train one joint model across all of the languages. And now we're talking, you know, languages where you have a very different amount of data. You have Hindi, where we have quite a lot of data. And then we have like Assamese, which is, I think, the last one that we shipped that has probably like two orders of magnitude less data. And the, the wonderful thing is that by training them jointly, the Assamese model learns from the huge amount of data that we have for Hindi and does like dramatically better than if we had just trained on Assamese by itself. In fact, we've done those experiments and, you know, for the smaller languages, we can get like five, 10 blue points, which is like a crazy level of improvement wow. just from the transfer learning uh, and multilingual. We also do that with like Arabic, uh, all of our Middle Eastern languages. So we're just like grouping more and more language families together and getting huge benefits out of this. And when you're grouping the the language families, have you ever, do you experiment with going across language families and seeing if there's some improvement uh, yeah. there? Yeah. So we, you know, we've trained models that have like 50 or 100 languages in them. What you run into is, you know, as you add languages, you have to increase the size of your vocabulary to accommodate uh, all of these languages. And you have to increase the size of the model because at some point you run into model capacity limits. So you can have a model that does a, a really nice job of learning from 50 or 100 languages, but it gets to be a really huge model. And so in terms of cost effectiveness, we found that like you get like almost all of the benefit of the transfer learning at like a much reduced cost by just grouping 10, 15 languages at a time. And if they're related, it's better. But actually, even if they're unrelated, it still works. It's quite amazing how well it works, yeah. even if the languages are not related. Yeah. You may think of it as like a computational test of Chomsky's universal grammar and, you know, these ideas that suggest that all languages have these common elements. Yeah. Uh, if you are able to train these models across languages and in improve them, that would seem to support those kinds of theories. I mean, definitely the models do a really good job of bringing uh, related concepts together in the in the embedding space, right? Yeah. Uh, would you consider this, you, you reference this as like multilingual transfer learning. Would you also think of it as a type of multitask learning as well? Or is is that not technically what you're doing in this task? So we're also doing, in addition to multilingual, just machine translation, we're also doing multilingual, multitask learning. And what we're doing there is we are combining the sort of, um, so there's, uh, let me back up a bit. There's been this whole line of research based on models like BERT, right? Pre-trained language models, where if you look at BERT, it's actually the encoder half of a machine translation model, but it's trained on monolingual data. It's trained on a, on a single language data on this objective that's a reconstruction objective where, you know, you're given an, a, a sentence where you have a couple of words or phrases blanked out. You need to predict that, right? And then you have multilingual BERT where you take multiple separate monolingual corpora, right? So it's like a bunch of English text, a bunch of French text, and all of that. And you train them jointly in the same model. And it does a pretty good job of actually pulling the representations of those things together. So that's one line of research that's sort of really driven a revolution in like the whole natural language understanding field, right? So for example, today, if you want to train a named entity tagger, you wouldn't start from scratch on your, ta on your named entity data. You would start with a pre-trained model. So one of the things that we're very excited about is we have this project that we call Z-Code, 
where we're bringing the machine translation work and this sort of pre-trained language model, bird style work together, right? And we train, we're training this multitask, multilingual model that's architecturally, it's just a machine translation model, right? But in addition to training it on the parallel data, let's say the English-French data and the English-German data, and conversely, the German-English data and the French-English data, and you know, 10 or 15 or 50 or 100 other languages. In addition, we have a second task where we have the BERT tasks. We take monolingual data and we, we have it reconstruct you know, the, the missing words. And we also have what's called a denoising autoencoder task, which is where you give it a scrambled sentence and then it has to output the unscrambled sentence through the decoder. And then now you have these three tasks and we train them in rotation on the same model. So they're sharing parameters. So the model has to figure out how to use the same parameters to do a good job of the BERT task, to do a good job of the denoising autoencoder task, as well as to do a good job of the machine translation task. And this we find leads to like much better representations that work for better natural language understanding quality, but also better machine translation quality. Nice. And the, the BERT task in this example is within the same language as opposed to right. across the target to the target language? Yeah, there's actually like a whole family of tasks, right? I mean, people have yeah. come up with, I mean, we've we've experimented with like 20, 25 tasks, right? So you can do a monolingual mask language model task, which is the BERT task, mm -hmm. but you can do a cross-lingual mask language task as well. And you can do the denoising autoencoder task monolingually, where you have to reconstruct the same language, but you can also do that cross-lingually, where you have to reconstruct sort of a scrambled foreign language task. So there's like a real like sort of stone soup approach here, where people are just throwing in all kinds of tasks and they all help a little bit, but we need to figure out like what's the minimal set that you need because you know it's work, it's computational expense to train these huge models on all these tasks. So if we can find the minimal set that works, that would be ideal. And so far what we're working with is like a denoising autoencoder, a mass language model and a machine translation task. Very, very cool. Very cool. One of the things that I think as users of machine translation, we run into is that it works great in kind of these general contexts, right. um, kind of everyday language. But when you start to get into specific domains, right. it's a lot harder for the systems to keep up. Is there any work that you're doing in that area? Yeah. So, you know, that's always the challenge, right, is that the quality is determined by the availability of data, right? So in languages where we have you know a lot of data and domains where we have a lot of data we do well and then if you don't have a lot of data uh you know it's it's much harder so we're doing a couple of things to get better there one is we're completely using we're now sort of turning the these models back on to look back on the data that they're trained on so we're using the uh, neural models to identify data that we previously had not found that's available on the net. So, you know, we're just using neural models to find parallel data. And then the other thing we're doing, of course, is that the same transfer learning that you can do cross-language, you can do it on domains as well, right? So instead of training a standalone model to like, you know, translate medical text, where you may not have that much data, if you train your giant model, but then have it fine-tuned on these domains, you can do a much better job. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that 
you know, often users of these kinds of machine translation services experiences that, you know, they work great in the general case, but when you start to try to apply them to specific domains, it's a lot more challenging, you know, and kind of the technical conversations or translating, you know, medical conversations or, you know, construction or what have you. Is there anything that you're doing to make the domain-specific performance better for these kinds of systems? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, domain performance in specialized domains is a real challenge, and we're doing several things to get better there, right? So the the first thing is that uh, the quality is really determined by the availability of data, right? So in the domains like, let's say, news or web pages where we have a ton of data, you know, we're doing really, really well. And then if you go into a more specialized domain, like let's say medical or legal, uh, where we don't have as much data, we're maybe not doing quite as well. And so one of the things we're doing is we're now taking the same neural models that are good at translation, and we're using them to identify parallel data in these domains that we can find on the web that we maybe weren't finding before. And uh, we can do that because these models, you know, because the representations are shared in the multilingual models, they're actually very good at identifying potential training data that, that is translations of each other. So that's one thing we're doing. The other thing we're doing, of course, is the same kind of transfer learning approach that we're using cross-lingually applies within domains as well, right? So if you have a small amount of medical domain data, you don't want to like just train a, a model that's based just on that you know, small data. What we're doing instead is we're taking you know, our huge model is trained on a ton of like general data across a bunch of domains. And then you fine tune it for the specific domains that you're interested in. And we actually have a product called Custom Translator that we have like, you know, thousands of customers using where they are using this approach to customize the machine translation to their company or their application needs, right? So let's say you're a car company or something, and you have a bunch of data that's about like automotive manuals, right? So you come to our website, you log in, you create an account, et cetera, you upload this data. And then what we do is we take your small amount of domain-specific data, we take our large model, and then we fine-tune it to that data. And now you have a model that does like, you know, sometimes dramatically, again, 10, 15, 20 blue points better than the baseline because, you know, we've learned the vocabulary and the specifics of your domain, but we're still leveraging we're standing on this platform of like the broad general domain quality so that's been extremely popular and valuable actually we just shipped a new version of that based on transformers a couple of months ago and in that case the user is presumably bringing translated documents so that that you're able to train or fine-tune with both source and target translations yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, a lot of uh, the companies that we work with have some data, right? Like, let's say they had a previous version of their vehicle or, you know, uh, whatever, and they had manuals that were translated. In Microsoft's case, for example, you know, we have, let's say, the manuals for Microsoft Word going back, you know, a couple of decades. And this is the kind of data you can use to customize it so that anything, any new content that you want to translate can have like a very consistent like vocabulary and and tone and so on, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in in that first example or the first technique that you mentioned, that sounds really interesting. So you've got this index of the web in Bing, you know, for example, or maybe you have a separate one, but you have this mechanism to kind of crawl the web. And it sounds like the idea is that you can use 
the model to identify, hey, I've got these two documents. They look really similar, but there is a a high percentage of words that I don't know that occupy similar positions in the same documents. Yeah. And then you have someone translate the, oh, well, actually, then once you know that, you can just align them, so to speak, and you've got more domain-specific document to add to your training set. Is that the general idea? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you're trying to find two very similar-looking needles in a very, very, very large haystack, right? Uh-huh. And so, so you have to have a magnet that finds exactly those two needles and rejects everything else. So the, the cross-lingual embedding space is pretty key here, right? So you basically, in principle, if you embedded every single sentence or document on the web, and then were able to look at every single document and find all of its very similarly close embeddings, you'd be done. But, you know, that's... that's uh, yeah, <laughs> Easier said than done. Easier said than done, right? So that's the kind of thing that we're trying to do at scale, right? Is like, you got these, you know, trillions of documents and, you know, we want to find the matching ones. You need to do it efficiently. And so there's a lot of like clever engineering that goes into like indexing this stuff and and like computing the embeddings efficiently. And of course, also, you know, we're not really trying to match every page on the web to every other page on the web because you have you know, a lot of clues that says, where, you know, if I have a document here, you know, is it likely I have to have a translated document somewhere? It's going to be either in the same like top level domain or related sites, things like that. So there are, there are ways to constrain that search. Mm-hmm. Our conversation thus far is focused primarily on text translation. Are you also involved in voice translation? Yeah, so we actually have been doing speech translation for a while. Several years ago, we shipped a feature for speech translation in Skype called Skype Translator. It was, you know, really well received, super exciting. A lot of people use it even today, right? Especially, you know, people talking to their relatives in another country. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting challenges in speech translation because it's not that you just take the output of a speech recognition system and then just pass it to machine translation, right? There's a there's a real mismatch in what comes out of speech recognition and what is needed to do a good job of translation because, of course, translation is expecting, like, you know, well-formatted text, capitalization, punctuation, sentence breaks, things like that. So we put a, we put a lot of effort into bridging that gap, you know, post-processing the output of speech recognition so that we have, you know, really accurate sentence boundaries. So that, that matters a lot. I mean, you break a sentence in the middle, and you try to translate, like if you break a sentence in the middle, the speech recognition itself is okay because as a human reading it, you know, there's a period in there, you just ignore it and move on. But the machine doesn't know that. And so when you're trying to translate it, you've got these two separate sentences and then it does a terrible job of it. So doing getting the sentence breaks right, getting punctuation right, and so on is really important. And so, so that's what we've been doing. We actually have a project going on now with the European Parliament where they are going to be using our technology, well, it's it, there's, there's three uh, contestants or three bidders in this project. And so there's a evaluation that will happen in a few months. But uh, we're hoping that they'll adopt our technology for live transcription and translation of the European Parliament sessions in all 24 languages of the European Parliament, which is super exciting. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So when you think about kind of where we are with you know, transformers and some of the innovations that we've talked about and, you know, relative to your 20, 30 years in this space. And I'm curious what you're most excited about and and where you see it going. 
Yeah, I mean, the pace of innovation has just been amazing. There's so many things that are happening that like, you know, would be a really dramatic impact, right? So one is just much larger models, right? As we scale up the models, we see continual improvements. And so as the hardware and the, you know, our ability to serve up these larger models keeps growing, the quality will also keep growing, right? The architecture of these large models also matters, right? Like it's not just matter of taking the smaller models and scaling it up exactly as is. So there are things like mixture of experts models that, for example, allow you to scale the number of parameters without the cost scaling as linearly, right? Because you have parts of the model that specialize in different parts of the problem. And then, you know, multilingual is definitely the future. Pre-trained models is definitely the future, right? So so like if you put that all together, like pre-trained, multilingual, multitask trained, maybe with mixture of experts, huge models. And then we would specialize them for individual language pairs or groups of languages and then distill them down to something we can ship. So that's one area that there's a lot of innovation happening. The other thing is that, you know, 10 years ago, people were just amazed that translation worked at all, right? Uh, (laughs) And now we're doing a really good job and the expectations have risen. So you get to the point where a lot of sort of smaller, let's call them long tail problems, start to matter a lot, right? So if you look at translation of names, we probably get them 99% right, right? But a few years ago, it would have been fine to say, hey, we're 97% accurate on names. But maybe now that's not good enough, right? Like screwing up 1% of the names is not acceptable. So, you know, how do we get that last 1% of names? And, you know, I'm just making up the, it it may be 99.9%. You're still going to have upset customers if you get, you know, 0.1% of your names or your numbers. Numbers are even worse, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you uh, misstate a number, even like 0.1% of the time, it could have catastrophic consequences, right? So that's an important area. I mentioned neural hallucination before. That's something we see where, again, it may happen only 0.1% of the time. But if you get like a completely unrelated sentence that has nothing to do with your input, but is really fluent. It's pretty deceptive, right? Like, because especially if I'm just putting my faith in this translation that, and I don't understand the source language at all, you'd be like, oh, sounds okay and move on. But maybe it says something completely different from what the source said, right? And so that's that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of really cool things happening in this space. Awesome, awesome. Well, Arul, thanks so much for taking some time to share a bit about what you're up to. Very cool stuff. Thank you. You're welcome, Sam. Thank you. Happy to be on on the show. Take care. Bye. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.